Um, I do not have a announcement, but on the 22nd, we're going to have the uh, uh, picnic. So be sure to plan on that. We'll have some sign-up sheets and everything coming up, as well as maps how to get out to Orlando's on that on that day. Starts at noon, goes to about 3. Then um, I guess that's about it, I think. I'll be, uh, I'll be gone just this weekend, and, um, but I'll be back Tuesday night. I'll be back before then, but I'll be back here on Tuesday night. So I think that's it. Do you, you remember any of the, the other announcement? I thought there was another announcement. I don't remember it. Okay. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that you can make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord. Prepare to uh, worship as we study his word. Worship through the study of his word under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer for confession of sin if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're just so grateful for answered prayer. We're grateful that we can come to you with uh, the challenges and the difficulties of life, knowing that you hear us and that uh, you answer our prayers. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is wait. And Father, we're thankful when the answer is yes, and we see see that take place. And Father, I'm just thankful today for a good report from Dan Ingram's um, uh, one of his technicians telling him that, yes, indeed, that tumor is shrinking, and so this is uh, solid news. We know it can never go away, but we're hoping that the impact of these treatments upon his thought processes and speaking ability will uh, be resolved as he heals, as his brain heals. And, Father, we just put that in your hands. Father, we're thankful so much for all that you've done for us and provided for us in your word. And we pray that tonight as we study some difficult passages that we can uh, focus and track with what's going on, uh, that we can understand it better. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are studying on the topic of love. We are studying this because on Thursday nights we are studying through Philippians, and we have come to this section, these three verses in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, where Paul wrote, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ." being filled or having been filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so he uses the noun agape here, which is the noun that has to do with the broadest meaning for love. It is the word that is used with God as the subject for God's love towards those rebellious, sinful creatures the, in the human race. 
or God loved the world in this way, John 3.16 says, uh, that he gave his unique son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The object of God's love are unbelievers for whom Christ died. And the noun and the verb that are used there, are the, the verb is the cognate of this noun, agapao. And so this is the broad spectrum um, word for love. A more narrow spectrum word for love is either philos or phileo is the verb, and that has a more intimate sense to it, uh, friendship, uh, maybe romance, but it has that more more intimate sense to it. And in uh, Roma, uh, excuse me, Revelation uh, three twenty, which states, "Behold, I stand at the door, and knock." and is misused as a salvation verse, the verse previous to it, God, the, the Scripture says that God has a phileo love for that church. Well, they're not unbelievers. So this is not a passage that has anything to do with salvation. It has to do with fellowship, that virtually Christ has been locked out of that church. And I can tell you that you can go through the list of churches in Houston, Texas, and probably... 85% of them, Christ has been locked out of those churches. And we know that because they're filled with false doctrine. They don't teach the word verse by verse. They don't exposit the word. They confuse salvation with works, all kinds of things. And they cut Christ out of the life of the church. So that's why we know that that passage does not have to do with knocking on the door of the heart of an unbeliever, but knocking on the door of a church that has basically excluded Christ from their fellowship. So this love is a love that is also, as we'll see tonight, provided by and developed in us by God the Holy Spirit. So you have two aspects, I think, to this love. You have the description of this kind of love that is certainly available to any and every uh, human being, whether they're a believer or not. But then there is a dimension to this love that is available only to believers because it's the fruit of the Spirit, and that's in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. So Paul is praying that our love may abound and that it abounds in knowledge and discernment so that love is not an emotion. It is related to two functions of our intellect, to knowledge, which is the acquisition of information uh, at the basic meaning of simple gnosis, but as it develops in us, it leads to a more uh, intimate relationship with God and a discernment about the things that are going on around us. And discernment has to do with being able to evaluate the quality of something. And that is why he goes on to say, that you may approve. So the purpose of the love abounding more and more, and the more and more indicates that it grows, it develops. It's not just something that is there because you're a believer but it grows, and it grows with reference to knowledge and discernment. And so that part, that part of that would also 
indicate that it's a result of God, the Holy Spirit, developing this in us as we grow uh, in our understanding of who God is, of who Jesus is, understanding of the Scripture and all the principles of Scripture. And its purpose is that we can approve the things that are excellent. And a lot of the choices that believers make in life are not necessarily choices between that which is good and that which is bad or that which is good and that which is evil, but are choices between that which is good and that which is excellent. And too often believers settle for the good and don't pursue the excellent. And we are to pursue the excellent in every area. And the result of that is then stated in the last half of that verse, that you may be pure or unsullied and without blame until the day of Christ. So that brings in the accountability aspect that we may grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, grow in terms of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which here is referred to as the fruits of righteousness, and that that is what is evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. And we've studied that aspect many, many, many times. So this is the, the focal point here is on this, this growth of epinosis knowledge, which is a more intimate type of knowledge, especially the object of that is more especially God in many, many passages. And that that approval is that word, dokimazo is the same word that is used uh, as a noun over in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 12 to 14 in describing the evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ. And then we have this participle, having been filled, that is what happens. See, the, it focuses on something in the future at the end of verse 10, the day of Christ. That's the judgment seat of Christ following the rapture. And so what happens there is the results of what had taken place earlier, having already taken place, and that is the uh, fruits of righteousness. That's the spiritual growth of the individual uh, believer. So we're looking at what the Bible teaches about understanding uh, biblical love. And what I did here was to break this down in seven basic passages, or seven basic points. The first is to look at John 13, 34, and 35, which establishes in the words of Jesus that, that love is the ultimate uh, mark of the maturing disciple, not the believer, but the maturing disciple, where he said that we are to love one another as he loved us, And by this, he said, this love for one another, all men will know that you are my disciples. And there's a difference, and it's very confusing for a lot of believers because they hear confused pastors and confused teachers who think, who say, think a disciple is the same as a believer. A believer is anyone who has trusted in Christ as Savior, period. Then the next decision is, am I willing to be a disciple, count the cost of discipleship, to grow, mature, and to follow Christ in every area of our life? And so some people will say, well, uh, I'm willing to maybe make it to the first grade, but not so much after that. Other people will say, well, I'll make it to about the fourth or fifth grade, but I don't really want all that pressure that will come with all that uh, advanced knowledge. Uh, so that's as far as I'm going to go. 
And John 6 is the key passage on that. After Jesus had taught the multitudes and, and describes them as, as disciple, the word simply means a student or a learner. And after he got through really laying out what the cost of discipleship would be, the text says they all left him. So the, there's a principle there that in many cases, the more a pastor teaches what the Word says, the fewer people are going to be attracted to that message. And that's why when you look at many of these churches that have thousands and thousands of people that the message isn't even a, a, a 32nd of an inch deep because you get it, the deeper it gets, the harder it is, and people don't want to hear all of that. So Jesus looked around and everybody left. What he was saying was too hard for them, and he looked at his disciples and said, why are you guys still here? And Peter said, well, you're the only one who has words of eternal life. And the context there would indicate that, that the meaning of that phrase, eternal life, is not always life without end. It's not always the, time, the eternal timeline as much as it's the quality as well as the quantity, the depth and the capacity for life that comes from spiritual growth. So Jesus says that it's, it's the disciple and their growth in love because only by growing and maturing in our spiritual life do we develop that fruit of the spirit the first one meant the first of first part of it is married. it's interesting it's the fruit of the spirit and then you have several different things listed love joy peace patience kindness gentleness all all those are not the fruits of the spirit they are the fruit of the spirit they're all facets of the same fruit and that is the really a description of the character of Christ that is being formed in us. So love is the ultimate indication of our spiritual growth and the depth of our discipleship. Then we looked at the illustration from the parable of the Good Samaritan. Then we looked that the greatest example of love is God's love for us as obnoxious unbelievers who were unrighteous, and then in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 8, last week we looked at the description of love in the Scripture. And so today we're going to start going through the last three of these seven, uh, seven aspects. So uh, I want to remind you of this. I don't have this slide duplicated later, but we need to remember this, that in John 13, 34, Jesus said a new commandment. See, the old commandment in Leviticus basically stated that um, in Leviticus 18, basically say, love your neighbor as yourself. So the neighbor later gets gets refined in terms of its meaning here as as your as the belief as other believers, but it's one another. But it also refers to those who are not not believers as well. And uh, the model, the pattern is Christ, not as you love yourself. So new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this is so important. This is one of those passages that is often misunderstood because you don't go back and look at the uh, original quotations, the context of these Old Testament quotations 
to understand what's going on here. And many people think that when this lawyer comes and says, teacher, what do I do to inherit eternal life? They think that what he's asking is, how do I get saved and spend eternity in heaven? And he's not asking that. In many places, the idea of inheriting eternal life is more than simply going to heaven and living eternally with God. It has a qualitative aspect to it, and the idea of inheritance is of possession of something. And so it is It is when Jesus came, John 10, he says, I didn't come like the thief to steal and destroy, but I came to give life, one, and to give life abundantly, two. So what he, what we see here is that's really what this lawyer is asking is how do I have the, this fullness of eternal life? Now, we have to understand that in terms of the Old Testament framework that he's coming to Jesus with. This isn't a church age question and answer session. This is under the Mosaic law. So this is still, you has to be understood in terms of the promises that God gave in the Mosaic law. So Jesus' question back is, what's written in the law? What is your reading of it? So this guy's a lawyer. He's a specialist in the Torah. And Jesus said, okay, how do you understand the Torah about this? And the lawyer says, uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And so this is a quote from Deuteronomy uh, 6, 5. And that is, you shall love just the same thing. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. In Luke 10, 28, Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, a lot of people say, well, you know, Jesus is really pointing out that he can't do that. But that isn't what the text says. You have to understand the Old Testament background here. So he, uh, the, the lawyer answered that you have 1027 up above. And so Luke, I mean, Deuteronomy 6, 5 is the first part, which I just quoted. And then Leviticus 19, 18 states, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So it's that last part that is quoted. And so when Jesus then says, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. Jesus is taking us to an earlier part of Leviticus 18 in verses 4 and 5, where God says, you shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances. This isn't about salvation, because when he's talking to the Exodus generation, almost all of them were saved. Maybe all of them were saved, but almost all, at least almost all of them were saved. We know that from the way they're described in the during the period of the Exodus. And so God is telling these saved people something about how to live. And he says, you'll observe my judgments, keep my ordinances to walk in them. I'm the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and ordinances. A person will live if he does them. Now, that's a promise within the Mosaic law, that if you obey the law, you will live. And, and what that's talking about is the, the, the generation that is observing the Mosaic law is going to be blessed by God. That's the first part of, Deut- of uh, Leviticus 18. 
uh, which is that goes on to in the first 12 verses, I think uh, it's talking about the blessing for the obedient ones. And if they're disobedient, then the rest of the chapter is the five cycles of divine discipline. So keep my statutes and ordinances, and a person will live. That's an abundance of life. That's not just being biologically alive. Because those Israelites we studied during the oppression of the Canaanites under Deborah, during the oppression of the Midianites uh, during before Gideon delivered them, and those we're studying now in uh, chapter 11 of Judges, the oppression of the Ammonites, they were alive, but they weren't living. They were under oppression from these foreign powers. And so this promise in Leviticus 18, 4 and 5 is saying, if you're obedient to me, you're going to experience a full, rich, abundant life, and I will be bringing blessing upon the nation. But if you disobey me, it's not going to be much of a life worth living. You're going to be under oppression, and you're going to be under judgment. So that's basically what we learn from that. And then Jesus is going to teach about the... the uh, Good Samaritan, and we learn several things from that. That first of all, neither the Samaritan, the priest, or the Levite, who all saw this uh, Jew on the side of the road who had been mugged and beaten up and had everything stolen from him, none of them knew him. So the application of love extends to people we don't know, we don't have anything to do with, and it may be somebody who is who who even hates us and despises us it may be it may be somebody who is uh uh an atheist and hostile to christianity and yet we are to treat them with love uh because the 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 jews in judea were hostile to the samaritans and they would go out of their way to avoid them second thing we learned was that the uh, recipient of the Samar- samaritans act of love uh, that, that's a point I just made. The Jew on the ground was totally hostile to the Samaritans. Third point is that the neighbor is anyone we meet, whether we know them personally or not. We may have never said a thing to them, but they, we are to extend unconditional love to them in order to help them. Uh, fourth, that means that love is not conditioned upon the behavior or the likability or any other positive factor in the one who receives it. That's the kind of love that that God has for us. It's the kind of love that, that we're total rebels, we're hostile to God, and he, um, he loves us is based on his character, not on the basis of our likability or anything within us. And so that's why we call it... Uh, we call it unconditional love, and we call it impersonal love because that's an emphasis on the fact that you don't have to have a personal connection with the individual. It can be somebody driving down the highway next to you, and all of a sudden they have a have a blowout, and they run off the side of the road, and they need help. It can be the cashier at the grocery store. It can be just about anybody that you run into that you have no personal connection with. Uh, and that six was a demonstration of grace, that love is um, love that is not based on grace isn't love. That's something uh, the bib- biblical love, the kind of love that's the fruit of the spirit. If it's not based on grace orientation, it's not biblical love. So um, then we came to the third point, 
I've got this in two different senses. Here, it's just the greatest example of love, which I've touched on already, John 3.16 and Romans 5.8. So we can go to the next point. And I expanded this definition as I thought about this, that love is a mental attitude. It is not an emotion, contrary to Webster and Collins and Oxford English Dictionary. They all define it as an emotion. Love is a mental attitude. Biblical love is a mental attitude toward others which desires the best for them according to the standards of God's integrity. Wants the best for them not according to your opinion or my opinion or your likes or my likes, but what's best for them according to what God establishes in his word. So you really can't have this kind of love if you don't understand God's character. Then the next paragraph, biblical love is not based on the attributes of the person loved, but is based on the integrity of God working through the believer who loves based on God's integrity and the work of the Holy Spirit. The last phrase, the work of the Holy Spirit, emphasizes that this is part of the fruit of the Spirit. The first part of that, based on God's integrity, I'm going to exercise kindness, gentleness, helpfulness to this individual, not because of who I am, because I'm a dirty, rotten sinner, selfish, self-absorbed, not because of he is, I don't know anything about him, but because of God's integrity and his example of love is why I'm going to be a channel for that to this individual. And you may never even give the gospel to him. You may never have that opportunity. Somebody else might. So then we looked at 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8. The first three exa- are, are examples. They're, they're uh, third-class conditions. And one of the ways that third-class conditions are used is B here, the asterisk, it expresses a purely hypothetical situation. And I always point that out when I go through this because there's always... Um, someone in a, from a charismatic background who says, oh, well, when I pray in tongues, I'm speaking in the language of angels. Well, prove it. Prove it. How do you know it's the language of angels? Show me anywhere in Scripture when an angel speaks in anything other than a human language. You can't prove that there's a, an independent angelic language. Furthermore, if you're speaking in a language you don't know, how do you know God answers that prayer. You don't know what you prayed for because you don't understand the language. So these are examples, extreme examples, hyperbolic examples, exaggerated examples. And Paul is saying, look, if I have anything, if I have all the money of Bill Gates, if I have all the kindness of Sister Teresa, if I have all of the best values of the best people you can ever think of and come up with, and I don't have love, it's worthless. Okay, then as we got down into uh, verse 4, we go through all the basic um, qualifications, characteristics, attributes of love. Love's long-suffering. It's patient. It's steadfast. It's steady. It, It remains stable. That can only come if the Word of God and the Holy Spirit are working inside you. It is kind, kindness. It shows uh, kindness to people, and it's, um, it, it means that, um, uh, I mean, a cognate noun of this means something easy or to be morally good and benevolent. 
and it emphasizes a positive reaching out or being useful or helpful to someone else. It, and then we have these negatives. So at the beginning, it says it's long-suffering or it's patient, it's kind, and then at the end, we're going to get another positive. But all we have most of the love is defined by what it's not. Have you ever noticed that's also true about God? God is often described by what he is not, not by just positive attributes. So love is not envious. It is not um, arrogant, doesn't focus on itself, brag about its accomplishments. It's not puffed up or that is conceited. Those are the main ideas there. Uh, it doesn't behave rudely. In other words, it doesn't disgrace itself. It's not shameful in its uh, behavior. Uh, it doesn't seek its own, again, self-absorption is a key part of this. Three different words are used to describe love, which have a lot to do with self-absorption, because that's really the opposite. We're all just so self-absorbed. Uh, doesn't envy, doesn't uh, focus on itself, doesn't uh, get all puffed up, and doesn't seek its own. Three different terms there. And then... Uh, it's not provoked. In other words, it's n not easily upset, and then um, it thinks thinks no no evil, but uh, and doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. So we went through all of those, and I kind of straightened out this chart a little bit. So you have at the beginning the two uh, descriptions: it's steadfast and it's kind, and then. Uh, it starts laying out all of the different characteristics that it's not envious, self-absorbed, arrogant, angered, rude, uh, conceited, rejoicing in wrongdoing, and not imputing evil, but it rejoices in integrity. So as long as you're within the circle described by those words, then that is biblical love being produced by God the Holy Spirit. So now point four sounds like point two, but it's different. The characteristics of God's love expressed in, are expressed in salvation. So I'm breaking this down a little bit. So what do we see if we describe this in some other terms? This is where we're getting into some material I haven't, I haven't covered before in this series. So first of all, when we think about what God is doing in John 3.16 and in Romans 5.8, that one of the characteristics of love is that it is um, initiating, that God initiates that. You see God initiating love towards Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's God who comes, and they're the ones who run away. So God is the one who has put a uh, testimony, evidence of his existence in the uh, wordless creation so that the, the majesty of the heavens and the earth, as you study them, demonstrate the, the incredible attributes of God. Romans 1 says that so that they are without excuse. They, they, there doesn't have to be a verbal argument for the presence of God because the text says that it's nonverbal and then the knowledge of God is within them but they reject it. it. It's just so fascinating. One of the things that I picked up when I was uh, in Africa that just goes to the, the issue of the intricate design of the animals is you th think about an impala. Now, an impala is not a very big antelope. 
uh, probably doesn't weigh much more than 30, 30 to 40 pounds. Uh, they joke about it because if you look at an, at a, at an Impala from the rear, there are three black stripes. There's two on the back of each hind leg and a black stripe on the tail. It looks like the letter M. God created McNuggets for the lions. So th- then when you, when you go down their, their, their hind leg to where you have the, the crook at the knee, there's a gland on the back of, of each hind leg. And they control what they excrete from that gland, how much and when and where. And so when a predator attacks the herd, they just scatter to all winds, but they are laying down a scent trail by what they are excreting from those glands. Uh, how much, how, you know, it can be a little bit where, so that they can all follow their way back and the herd can get back together after the threat is gone. Now, you think that just developed by chance? You know, how many different systems are part of, of, of just that, that gland? You have all the nerve connections, the control connections that develop in the brain. That's, that's got to be thousands of, of different components. And all of them have to be there to be working or they're detrimental. So you can't say, well, you know, it's, it, it's mutation because each one of those mutations would take uh, thousands of years and none of them would be beneficial until all of those thousands of components are together at one time and functioning. Because the first time one little impala develops one little part of that in a mutation, it's not working yet, so he can't find his way back to the rest of them. So he dies by, you know, and then you've got to wait another million years for another mutation to develop into an impala, and it's never going to happen. See, it's just total irrationality. So God sets all that there. That is, that is what God does. So God is the one who makes his presence known, and man rejects it. But God is the one who continues to initiate toward the unbeliever, and he's the one who provided a perfect solution at the perfect time. In Galatians 4.4, 4, uh, Paul says that in, in um, the fullness of time, when everything came together, so God took about four to 5,000 years of prophecy and promises to build to the point where the human race was ready for the incarnation of the Savior. Have you ever thought about that? Why didn't, you, why didn't that first generation have the Messiah? That's what, that's what Eve thought. When she had her first baby, she called him Cain, which means acquisition, because he says, I've acquired a son from the Lord. She thought Cain was the, the seed that was promised. Didn't work out that way, did it? So God goes through this whole process, and uh, from billions of years ago in eternity past, God had a perfect plan, all, all conceived. So his love is also aggressive. Aggressive means that it asserts itself with confidence and boldness. But it's not self-absorbed, it's not arrogant, and it is uh, not self-serving. So it's not operating from a position of weakness. And because of God's omniscience, God knows 
uh, all of the uh, problems that we face, and he understands all of the different issues that are involved, and so he takes the appropriate steps because only he understands the uh, totality and complexity uh, of, of a situation. And we lack knowledge. We think we know a lot about something, but we don't know probably one billionth of the knowledge that we should know to accurately assess and understand a particular situation. Love is also humble. It doesn't seek its own personal glory, but takes on the attitude of a servant to do whatever is necessary, including the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity in order to be a sacrifice in the place of all human beings. And Christ did that. The suffering of Jesus on the cross was more intense than any suffering any human being has ever experienced. Now, you just think about that a little bit, about all the people who have suffered from torture, from pain, from being severely burned, from all kinds of different things, and Jesus' suffering made all of that just pale in insignificance because he went through all of those physical tortures on the way to the cross. He was, he was uh, whipped with a Roman flagellum, which would have just stripped the flesh off his back. It was designed to expose the organs uh, inside the body. He would have had uh, uh, the, the nerve endings would have been absolutely on fire. He didn't say a word. He didn't cry out, he didn't scream, he didn't moan or groan. He was like a lamb before its shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. And he goes through that, and he goes through all of the other um, uh, things that were involved in his beating and as they uh, uh, just uh, beat him mercilessly, and he finally goes to, goes to the cross. But it's only when sin is imputed to him that he screams out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the love of God is humble, and Jesus humbled himself by being obedient to the point of going to the cross. Uh, fourth, it's intense. God's love is intense. It's a zealous determination to achieve the goal of salvation despite all obstacles, and we see that through the entirety of the history uh, of the Old Testament. And, and God, through his omnipotence and his omniscience, brings it about slowly, incrementally over time until it reaches the fullness of time. It's steadfastly loyal. That's the basic meaning of that word we've studied many times in the Psalms, chesed. It means God's faithful love, steadfast love, loyal love. It, it really is a term that describes loyalty to a covenant and no matter what happens, the one who has chesed remains loyal to the covenant. And that is a pattern for the kind of love that should be in a marriage because a marriage is grounded on a covenant. It's grounded on a contract, a legal contract. That's what, that, what the marriage license is. And in all wedding ceremonies, there are the vows. And so you love the other person on the basis of what you obligated yourself to in the contract that doesn't sound very romantic, does it? But, you know, we all know that 5, 10, 15, 30, 60 years later, there may be times when that, that burning passion of romance just didn't quite there like it was uh, long before. And there are times when different things happen and people get upset and 
things like that. And you stay, you stick around because of that commitment. That is God's love. And he looks at all these rebellious human beings and they've all violated God's covenants. And yet God is steadfastly loyal. The sixth term to describe God, Christ's love for us or God's love for us is consecration. That's a word that is, seems rather archaic today. But it is the idea of being set apart to a purpose, set apart to a goal. When you see a, an ordination ser- service for a pastor or missionary, this is recognizing they're being set apart to a mission, to a particular purpose, something of that nature. And Christ is set apart to the purpose of being the exclusive means of salvation for all mankind. As, and he was loyal to, to that. He did not waver. He did not yield to the uh, temptations of Satan at the beginning of his ministry. Neither did he uh, yield to the uh, verbal and inquisitional uh, uh, pressure of the religious groups the week before he went to the cross. And so he remains focused on his mission. And that leads to uh, the seventh point, which is dedication. He was committed to the task of service and sacrifice and salvation and our sanctification. And then lastly, another word is he's devoted. Devoted means somebody gives or applies uh, their time, their attention, their energy, their money, their resources, everything to a particular activity or cause And in this case, Jesus devoted everything to that purpose through the incarnation and crucifixion to pay the penalty for our sins. So it's these words that describe the kind of love that God has for us. And that is the kind of love that God the Holy Spirit can generate. We can't do this on our own. It's only developed through God the Holy Spirit as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ through the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Now, the fifth thing about uh, that I want to, that we see in the New Testament about love is from our passage in Philippians one nine, which tells us three things about love. First of all, we should pray. That's what Paul is doing. He's praying for the Philippian believers that their love will abound more and more for the purpose that they will be uh, uh, choosing the, the excellent instead of simply the good. And so we should be praying for ourselves, for our families, for our husbands, for our wives, our grandchildren, that their love may abound uh, in knowledge and in all discernment, which only comes from the word. And we should be praying for that. The second thing that we see is that love is not an emotion, but is closely related to knowledge and discernment. So it's, it's the function of our intellect. It's not the function of our, of our emotion, but it's a, a pr- product of God, God the Holy Spirit. And then third, I don't think I, I must have lost that somehow on that slide. Uh, third, uh, we learn that love or capacity for love is something that grows and develops as we mature spiritually. 
And that's because biblical love is produced by God, the Holy Spirit, by walking by the Spirit, step by step. It's an incremental growth that develops over time. Sixth thing is that we learn from Galatians 4.22 is that biblical love is a fruit of the Spirit. When we look at that great context and that that passage that begins actually back in Galatians uh, 5.16, we see that the command there is to walk by means of the Spirit. And what follows is the result of walking by the Spirit. So Galatians 5.16, Paul says, walk by means of the Spirit and you will not. And the grammar there means it's impossible for you to fulfill the lust of the flesh unless you stop walking. But as long as you're walking, you're fo- it's like when Peter is on the water, And you have this storm, you have the waves, and he's focused. His eyes are focused like laser beams on Christ. It doesn't matter what the waves are doing. He's staying on top of the water. He's that that is an illustration of what it means to walk by the Spirit. You're dependent. But as soon as you start looking at the waves, he starts to go down. See, the first thing that happens is that he looks away. And as long as we're walking by the Spirit and focused on walking by the Spirit, then we're not going to uh, fall away. We're not going to yield to the lust of the flesh. But as soon as we t- get, take our eyes off of the Holy Spirit, off of what the Scripture teaches about the Holy Spirit, then what happens is that we are going to f- fulfill the lust of the flesh. We just go that way. And then the next two verses describe the battle that every believer faces, and that is that the sin nature is at war with the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit versus the sin nature. And the control point is our volition. Are we going to walk by the Spirit or not? So the flesh is lusting, seeks to control the Spirit, and the Spirit seeks to control the flesh. And Paul says these are contrary, they're antithetical to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. And we've all experienced that. Well, we know we shouldn't really be doing this. We shouldn't be getting angry. We shouldn't be getting frustrated. We shouldn't be uh, thinking these thoughts or those thoughts. We shouldn't be telling this story because it's just nothing but gossip. And, and we say, well, you know, there's just something in me that's making me do that. Well, you're choosing to let it make you do that, and that's your sin nature. And so that we do what we don't want to do, and we... Uh, don't do what uh, uh, what we do what we don't want to do, and we don't do what we know we should do. So, uh, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law, because that's the problem the Galatians were dealing with there. And then he describes the works of the sin nature that tell us, you know, if if this characterizes you then you know that at that point you're not living on the basis of the Holy Spirit. You're living on the basis of your sin nature. And then uh, the fruit of the Spirit is in verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, why does he list love first? He lists love first because if you go back to verse 14, Paul introduces love when he says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he's quoting from Leviticus 18:19, and then he goes through all of that other to show that the only way you're going to develop love, to be able to truly love your neighbor as yourself, is if you are walking by the Spirit. And the fruit of that 
walk by the Spirit is one fruit, singular. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against which there is no law. So that's, that's this whole point. And we have to understand that biblical love is not the same as you can have an agape love for others just like any unbeliever can. But it's not biblical love because biblical love is a fruit of the Spirit. And then we come to what is really a, well, I'm just going to start it tonight, but this is challenging. I started working through 1 John, and what does 1 John tell us about love? And so there's a couple of things I want you to remember about 1 John. The first thing is that this is one of the last things that John writes. John wrote the gospel. I think he wrote 1 John after he had written the gospel. These are written sometime after 90 A.D., maybe close to it. We don't know. Some people think that the gospel of John isn't written until after Revelation. Other people think that it's the other way around. We, We just don't have enough detail to be dogmatic about those things. But what is important to understand is that the language of 1 John chapters 1 through 5, the same language uh, that Jesus uses in the upper room discourse in John 14, 15, 16, those are the chapters. And he talks about abiding and knowing God and commandments and walking. All of these key terms are right there. And the way I discovered that was when I first went up to Preston City and I was thinking, this issue with the free grace versus lordship has to be clearly understood, and the best place to start is with the Gospel of John. So we're going through the Gospel of John verse by verse, and we went through the upper room discourse, and we're going through John 14, 15, 16. And then, uh, you know, about two or three months later, we finished the Gospel of John, and I thought, well... I need to just go to First John. I need to tackle that. It's a tough epistle, a lot of controversy. What's the purpose of First John? And I started reading it in the Greek, and I thought, because it was still fresh in my mind, the language and vocabulary of, of John of the Upper Room Discourse. This is a John is expanding on what Jesus said in the Upper Room Discourse. And that has to be understood. And it's amazing how few scholars have, have made that observation. But what that tells us is that First John is written to believers about believers. It is not written to give tests of salvation. Those are really the two views. You either interpret the contrast in First John to be between um, believers who are walking in the light and those who are not walking in the light, or you interpret it as it's a contrast between believers and unbelievers. Now, if you take it as a contrast between believers and unbelievers, you have to go with what we call a lord what is called lordship salvation. And that is that a true believer is going to inevitably demonstrate certain fruit and character changes if he's truly saved. They reject the idea that there's such a thing as a carnal believer. They reject the idea that there is such a thing as a believer who can who is not a disciple. They say a, a disciple and believer, they get confused. They're the same thing. So that leads them to a lot of problems. 
What is difficult is that John says some things in the epistle that are real difficult, and we think, how is that not a contrast between believer and unbeliever? And so all of these scenarios, you have to start with the presupposition. He's not contrasting believer and unbeliever. He's contrasting the believer who is walking in the light and in fellowship with the believer who is not walking in the light and in fellowship. And that controls your interpretation of this whole epistle. And it took me years of study because you you read good commentators and good men who are solid in some other areas, and then they just lose it at first john and it's it's very very the language the Greek is very simple, but what does it mean that's where the complexity does so the first point in terms of an introduction to J- John here is that John calls his readers little children whose, quote, sins are forgiven for his name's sake, 1 John 2.12. He also calls them fathers who have, quote, known him from the beginning, and he writes to the, quote, young men who have, quote, overcome the evil one and in whom the word of God abides. That's all language saying that he's writing to a group of people who are believers already. He's not talking to a group where some are believers and some are not believers. Second, he says uh, that they are to abide, and abiding is a term for fellowship. In John 15, 1 through 8, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me, and I in you, and you will bear much, bear much fruit. And there's three stages of fruit. You'll bear fruit, you'll bear more fruit, you'll bear much fruit. He's talking to his disciples. He's not talking to anybody there that's not saved. Judas has already been kicked out. Uh, before they uh, finish their meal, and he is t- telling them that they have to abide. Abide is not a synonym for be saved. And yet if you read John MacArthur, Lordship Salvation Guys, and going back to strong Calvinist all the way back, they confuse that. And that's a big difference. Every time you see the word abide, you have to think he's talking about fellowship, with Christ. And so believers can abide or not abide. That's why Jesus gives a command, abide in me. That's that that's a binary command. You're either abiding or you're not abiding. And if you're a believer, you at times you're abiding and sometimes you're not abiding. So in 1 John 2, 6, he talks about them and he says, he, he who says he abides, that is the person who says, I'm, I'm walking in the light, I'm in fellowship, I'm uh, abiding in Christ, ought himself also to walk just as Christ walked. See, that's if you're abiding in Christ and you're walking in fellowship, you're living on a basis of the principles of Scripture and, and the Word of God. Also, third, he refers to hating their brothers. So he talks several times all through here about believers who hate their brothers. And he says things like in 1 John 2, 9, he who says he is in the light and hates his brother, is in darkness until now. See, Lordship Salvation will come along and say, uh, well, if you hate your brother, you're in darkness, so that means you're not a believer. But how can this person you're hating be your brother if they're, you're not both believers? He's not ha- hating his neighbor, who could be an unbeliever. He's hating his brother or sister. He's a- hating a fellow Christian. You can't hate a fellow Christian unless you're both saved. So both of them have to be believers. And fourth, he uses the plural pronoun we 
throughout where he is including himself along with his readers. So that lays the groundwork. We have to understand that 1 John is talking about a contrast between believers who are growing, walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, walking in the light, and those who primarily are not. That's, that's the contrast. So when we look at this, we're going to see that some believers hate other believers and some believers love other believers. And so we're going to go through a lot of these passages and we'll come back and do that next time when we look at what First John teaches about love. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things that we might give greater thought to what it means to love people, to love uh, other people, to love our wives, to love our children, to love uh, our neighbors, to love those we don't even know, as, and how God the Holy Spirit produces that in us on the basis of our spiritual growth in the Word of God. So, Father, we pray that you challenge us with these things. In Christ's name, amen.